the message of it's important, but we have to focus on the future. We have to focus on other things. We can't look back. We have to look forward is more of what you find Republican voters saying, yeah, that sounds right. I'm, I think that what happened in the past was wrong, but I want to look forward at the problems that we're facing down the road. And that's where someone like Ron DeSantis, I think, is going to have an advantage because Donald Trump just cannot stop focusing on things that happened in the past and relitigating old grievances. Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and this is a special episode of Lost Debate where we talk about the future of the GOP and the makeup of this 2024 GOP primary. And I talk in this episode to Kristen Soltis Anderson, who is a famous pollster and commentator on TV and has largely worked with Republican candidates in the past. And she and I talk about, you know, what's happening in the GOP field. How strong is Trump? Is DeSantis a viable challenger? Are there any other viable challengers in the race? We also talk about the GOP's you know, potential appeal to young voters, something that Kristen has been talking and writing about for a long time, and whether they can grow their base of support with young voters. And then we kind of broaden out the discussion to talk about parents in general, school issues, and how much education is going to play a part in this 2024 election. And, you know, just say, like, well, what can the two parties do to persuade parents, including some of those, like, you know, mythical suburban parents who sometimes swing these elections? Now, I want to note that I had my conversation with Kristen before the indictment of Trump came down. And obviously, that indictment of Trump is going to play a major role in the 2024 election campaign. It's potentially, like, going to play out, the trial is going to play out potentially during the 2024 primary, which would be seismic and obviously shape in many ways that race. So what I want to do before I even kick it to Kristen is give you a couple of top line thoughts about this indictment and some of the information that we've learned over the past few days about the case against Trump. And we'll link in the show notes to the prior segments we've done about this, where we basically lay out a lot of things that now we know to be true, like what the charges were going to be, like what kind of evidence they would have, et cetera. But there's obviously a lot we don't know yet. And so what I want to do is frame just a couple top line thoughts as questions I have right now. And I'm going to assume you're familiar with the basic facts of the case. The basic facts of the case have, you know, essentially are that there are 34 counts of bookkeeping fraud related to Trump's reimbursement in 2017 to his lawyer, Michael Cohen. And this relates to a, a situation where Cohen, before the 2016 election, made a $130,000 hush money payment to porn actress Stormy Daniels, who is alleged to have an affair with Trump. Now, question number one is, if you remember, if you commit bookkeeping fraud in New York, it's normally a misdemeanor. But in order to elevate it to a felony, you have to show that that bookkeeping fraud was in furtherance of another crime. So question number one I have is, what is that other crime? And Bragg's office seems to be floating multiple theories about what that crime could be. And the two most notable are that Trump was using bookkeeping fraud to uh, commit election fraud by not disclosing critical electioneering activity to the voters. And so the electioneering activity would be purchasing stories that are inconvenient and that would lose you votes and not disclosing that on your election commission reports. Now, 
the challenge for Bragg is going to be that Trump was not running for a, a state office. He was running for a federal office, and federal prosecutors have thus far declined to prosecute that charge against Trump. So he would be testing a novel legal theory. It's never been used before in New York to say that you, you know, your second crime is a federal election crime. So that would be new. That Now, novel doesn't mean impossible. It just means that the bar is a little bit higher. And it's also maybe a more difficult political sell. The bigger news here, though, and what I have a question about is that Bragg and his office seem to think that Trump has was trying to further a second crime, which is to commit tax fraud. And essentially, you know, there are a lot of details here, but essentially what Bragg's office is saying is that with through the bookkeeping fraud and the way that they were paying out Michael Cohen, they were um, trying to ensure that tax authorities didn't view that as a reimbursement for the very services that Cohen was providing, which is paying off Stormy Daniels. So they're saying that like, hey, they were trying to classify this as income and that was misleading to tax authorities and that is a New York crime. So that could be the second crime that they try to show here. Now, so so that's my first question is just what that second crime is going to be. My second question is going to be, what do the prosecutors have uh, about what Trump was told and understood about the nature of the payment to Cohen, including whether it was legal or illegal under federal and state law and how it would be recorded within the company's books? Um, so let me state that again. Like, what do, does the prosecutor have in terms of hard evidence about what Trump knew about these transactions? Because they're going to have to show that not only did he know that certain payments were being made, but that he knew how it was going to be recorded because how they were recorded was the crime, not the fact that the payments were made at all. Because you can pay people off in this country for anything, basically, pretty much. So it's not illegal to pay off a porn star to be quiet and not tell your wife or or anybody about um, what you're doing. Now, what, what it is illegal to do is either to not report that on your Federal Election Commission report or not to properly classify it in your business or to tax authorities. So they're going to have to show that Trump knew something. And we don't know a lot yet about what evidence they have for that. It seems like the main piece of evidence that we have about that is Michael Cohen's testimony. Um, now, we don't know for sure whether that's the only evidence they have. And so much of my impression of this case will come down to how strong that evidence is. Uh, there's a, another part of this, which, you know, a series of questions I have, which is uh, about AMI and the National Enquirer. There's a whole section here that goes beyond Stormy Daniels and talks about uh, a, you know, two other instances, one involving a Playboy model and the other involving a doorman at a Trump uh, Tower. Um, and basically, AMI has a you know, acknowledged in a non-prosecution agreement, uh, basically just like a, a legally binding document with prosecutors, that they in fact were doing catch and kill operations. So they were they were going out there and finding information that could be damaging to Trump, and that they were um, paying people for the rights to their stories, and then sitting on those stories, what they call a catch and kill. And AMI acknowledges in this prosecution agreement that they were doing that to help Trump's election chances. Now. Uh, and same question as I had before is like, well, okay, what kind of hard evidence do they have that Trump was the one who signaled that, or was this AMI's interpretation of some something Trump said, et cetera? Um, there are apparently audio recordings of some you know conversations between Trump and Cohen about how they would set up those payments for AMI, et cetera. Now, the AMI stuff has not yet been charged, so that's notable to me. Like, are are there further charges coming? 
or is that the weaker part of the case? Because then if it's the weaker part of the case, then those audio recordings are not going to be too relevant other than to show some kind of pattern of practice of breaking the law. There are a lot of other questions I have here, particularly about this like state election law piece. And like, you know, as I mentioned previously on the podcast, like it's really hard to show intent here. Like you have to show that Trump, who had a lot of reasons to bury this, this, um, this story, if they're going to be hanging their hat on the election law piece, they have to show that his primary reason for burying the Stormy Daniels uh, story was election related, not marital relating or, or just like public image related. Now, my common sense tells me, of course, it was given the proximity of all this to the election, but common sense is not the test you use in a criminal case. This has to be beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, a couple other pieces to think about here. Uh, one is jury selection. So Joe Biden got 86% of the vote in Manhattan where they're going to be drawing a, a jury pool from. How are they going to ensure that this is an impartial jury? It's going to be really tough. Trump's lawyers want to move this case to Staten Island, which is you know, where I grew up. And I can tell you right now that they're going to have the opposite problem in Staten Island. It's going to be hard to find an impartial jury the other way in Staten Island. It's the nature of how politicized this kind of stuff is, is right now. I doubt that the, you know it's almost a 0% chance that it will be moved to Staten Island. And that, that kind of stuff is hard to pull off. Uh, so, you know, what is this jury pool going to look like is another question I have. And my final question is going to be what kind of reverberations are we going to see the other way now? You're starting to see people like Matt Walsh and Republicans from, you know, everywhere from major TV networks to elected officials now openly calling for political investigations of Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, and other Democrats. And, you know, my sense is, like, even if 99% of elected Republican prosecutors, you know, do the right thing and resist partisan temptation to go after cases like that, all you need is 1%. And then you're going to start to see, like, the disintegration of any remaining norms that we have in our legal system, which really worries me. Now, those hard, those cases are going to be hard to do in, in certain places. Like, if you're in, you know, in Foley, Alabama, and you're a district attorney down there, it's going to be hard to show a nexus to... Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden the way that you would uh, if you were a New York district attorney and trying to find a nexus to Trump who lived in New York, incorporated in New York, and engaged in many of these activities while in New York. So, you know, I, I, I'm not sure those cases will be particularly strong against Hillary and Joe Biden and other Democrats and some of those other places, but that doesn't mean people won't try to charge them. And that's when things will truly break down in this country. So my final, you know, speaking of things breaking down, my final question is just like, we haven't seen a lot of this sort of violence that people were predicting in the wake of these charges, particularly in, you know, my neighborhood of lower Manhattan yet. Like obviously there are things happening outside of the courtroom, but it wasn't anything on the order of the January 6th level stuff that some people were predicting. Now, you got to remember, it took a while for us to get to January 6th. So my sense is we're not out of the, the woods yet on this and, and things could get a lot worse. Like it is, you know, sort of heartening so far that we haven't seen a lot of that violence, but you know, things could ratchet up, you know, as Trump has to appear in court and it's the middle of 24, 24 season, he has more time to organize and, you know, you know, people, you know, start to make travel plans and they have more notice about where they can go. Like things could get a lot worse. And so my sense is right now in looking at all this, and we'll talk about this more next week, is there's not a ton that we learned yet in the statement of facts and um, through Bragg's office and, and anything that's happened in and around this. But it seems like through the discovery process, which is where we're entering now, we're going to learn a lot. We're going to learn about the strength of their evidence. And at that, at that point, I will 
have a lot more to say about the appropriateness of this case, which I've talked a lot about on this podcast. And, you know, if they have the smoking gun that he really did know he was breaking multiple laws when he carried out these transactions, that would sway me. And I, and I would hope it would sway you. But if on the other hand, you know, what we see right now is what we've got, then I would feel much differently about this case. Well, okay, deep breath. With all of that, let's talk to Kristen Soltis-Anderson, pollster, uh, you know, thinker, commentator, pundit about the state of the GOP field. Kristen Soltis-Anderson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start off with this, you know, battle royale that's going on in the GOP primary now. It's it's basically shaping up now. It seems like the the two big forces in this race are Ron DeSantis and Trump. Before we even talk about like their relative standing within the GOP, your team at Echelon did some polling recently about just what the electorate is looking for in the GOP primary. What did you learn? Sure. So we did something that is uh, pretty exciting. It's it's not the usual way you see polling get presented, and it's called a conjoint analysis. It's used a lot in consumer product testing to figure out, okay, what feature is most important about a product that people would want, you know? And in, in the way you do it, like let's take pizza as an example. You'd say, which pizza would you rather order? One that has pepperoni, onions, and olives, or one that has uh, mushrooms, extra cheese, and jalapenos, whatever. Both of those kind of sound gross now that I think about it. But, you know, which pizza would you prefer? And you see which pizza, like which topping tends to be on the winning pizza more often. So like, that's that's the way we, we do it. So in this case, we did it with... Oh, by the way, uh, just a quick question on that. Is that similar to... Are you familiar with Todd Rose over at Populous? Is that the stuff that they do over there? You might not know them. That name sounds they, really familiar. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. I, so I, I don't want to like say yes or no. Yeah. Um, he does... Li- I think it's called List Experiments. Maybe it's like a different form, uh, format, but I don't know. It, that, that, could be, yeah. that could be similar. So what we do here is we, we've given people... Instead of hypothetical pizzas, we're giving them hypothetical candidates for office. And we're listing a handful of different characteristics, not naming anyone, but just saying, okay, if this candidate has made controversial comments about other groups, is a first-time candidate, is in their 70s or 80s, and you know, uh, wants to win more people in the base, like, would you vote for them more or less, you know, those sorts of things. And we find that for Republicans, um, one, being an older candidate is uh, something that most Republicans say they don't like. Now, it may be that they're not thinking of Donald Trump as an older candidate, and it's instead triggering for them, oh, that's Joe Biden. <laughs> I don't like him. Yeah. Even I though the, the question is specifically about Republican parties, primary voters. Both parties said the same thing, right? Both parties didn't want Right. Both parties, if you were a candidate in your 70s or 80s, it was dramatically like less likely that you would win in the battle. But the other thing that was really important for Republicans was – somebody who runs stronger than Donald Trump did in the 2020 election. So what I we found about a year or two ago when we were going into the field and we would ask about attributes Republican voters were looking for, there was this consistent pattern of wanting someone who would fight. You want someone who's going to take the fight to the Democrats or take the fight to the media or whatever that looks like. And it seems like we're at a moment where it is pivoted from wanting someone who will fight to someone who will win. Because after the 2022 election, Republican voters thought they were going to get this red wave and it didn't happen. And so now things like electability, things like the ability to not just fight, but to actually win, put some W's on the board, um, that's a higher priority for Republicans. And it is something that has made it possible for someone like Ron DeSantis to challenge Donald Trump in a GOP primary field 
that a couple of months ago, you might have thought, gosh, there's no way somebody defeats Donald Trump. Mm. And so how do you think about the fact that there are going to be multiple people in this race? There's this theory out there that given that Trump has a, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, like a plurality of support, it looks like, but not a majority necessarily, depending on what poll you're looking at, that he actually benefits from more people being in the race because Ron DeSantis, then his electorate gets sliced and diced into more and more pieces. So this was a lot of the type of thinking that we saw about eight years ago when you had the Republican primary beginning to shape up in 2015 and then really, uh, you know, coming to a head in 2016 was this idea that the reason why Donald Trump was able to win was because all of the other vote was split amongst Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, John Kasich, all these people that have said they're not running this time. They do not. They're not interested. Um, And there was some kernel of truth to it. Um, If Donald Trump was able to just get a consistent 35 percent of the vote everywhere and everything else was split up, that was enough, especially if you had a winner-take-all delegate state to just bank a bunch of delegates and and he was home free. Um, But there was also a little bit of flawed thinking there in that you assumed, well, gosh, if Marco Rubio drops off, that means that all of Rubio's voters go to Ted Cruz. Aha, but not necessarily. Um, Some of those Rubio voters do wind up going to Donald Trump. So you've got the same kind of thing here as well, assuming that it's just, gosh, Donald Trump versus Ron DeSantis that's the only way for Donald Trump to lose, ignores that, you know, there could be some folks who are uh, interested in other candidates. Maybe you're a Mike Pence voter, but you like Donald Trump. I mean, it's easy to understand Mm -hmm. why that wouldn't be the case. Or you're a Nikki Haley voter. Um, But if it's not Nikki Haley, then it is Donald Trump. I mean, voters are complicated. They're not as easy to put into simple buckets as we in the polling industry sometimes like to try to do. So it is probably beneficial for Donald Trump to have a big field, but no guarantee. Is there somebody other than Ron DeSantis that you look at in the field and say, okay, this person is stronger than the media is giving them credit for right now? Like if if you were to finish the sentence, like, you know, if you were to fill in the blanks to say at the end of this cycle, somebody other than Donald Trump uh, or Ron DeSantis has won the nomination, that person would be blank. Who do you think that would be? Ooh, it's a good question. I would say there's going to be a moment if South Carolina Senator Tim Scott jumps into the race, he will have a polling boomlet. I don't know how long it will last. I don't know if it means he winds up being the third place person. But there are other folks in the race, someone like Mike Pence, where everybody kind of knows him. They've heard from him. He doesn't need to introduce himself to voters. Similarly, even someone like Nikki Haley, I mean, she has pretty good favorables within the party, but it's not that she's introducing herself to a lot of voters. But someone like Tim Scott, I think, would be introducing himself to a lot of voters. So I look at that kind of pool of folks, those who would have lower name ID nationally among Republicans, who do have a chance to introduce themselves, who could have an outside shot at, you know, pulling off a miracle if that introduction goes well. And I would note that would also be paired with someone like Ron DeSantis having perhaps a bit of a glass jaw or something mm-hmm. like the meatball Ron insult tends to stick. You know, if something like that happens, <laughs> yeah, I, I hear Trump Republicans have put all their eggs in. Yeah. <laughs> He's workshopping them now. If if yeah. if Republicans start putting all their eggs in that basket, and then you get past that first or second debate, and it's not going as well for DeSantis as maybe folks thought, then is there like an in case of emergency break glass moment and somebody else rises up in the field. But that is all like seven different moves down the chessboard from from where we're at right now. 
Is there anything notable when you combine, okay, so you take what you're doing, which is taking the names out of it. When you take that data and then you put that side by side, so you, electability matters more than ever, you know, still probably looking for somebody who's going to fight, but fight plus electability probably matters. And then when you look at the polling, when the names are included, is there anything like when the names are included that makes you say, okay, like something about these brands, it might be superseding what people are saying is their, their general preference. Well, so I, I think, you know, when you see something pop up in our data that shows candidates in their seventies and eighties are disliked, yeah. <laughs> but you know, a lot of those folks yeah. are also picking Donald Trump, you know, there, right. there is voters are complicated. You, that's, that's yeah. an easy, safe assumption to always make. Um, but I think one thing that's going to be fascinating is if we know that electability is a big piece of the puzzle for Republicans, there's also no guarantee that that is a bad thing for Donald Trump across the board. We have also asked questions like, do you think that Donald Trump on balance helped or hurt Republicans in the midterms? And it's not, you know, 80% of Republicans say Donald Trump hurt us. You know, there are lots of Republicans that think, he was a wash or, you know, he still turns out the base. That, so it's not a guarantee that just a pure electability argument harms Donald Trump. In the same way, I would argue that in 2016, there was nothing Republicans wanted more than to beat Hillary Clinton. And you would yeah. think, oh, if electability is at a premium, um, yeah. then gosh, why would you pick a Donald Trump? He's so risky. But Republicans were tired of losing and they actually felt like going with someone safe was a recipe for losing. So don't assume yeah. that the way that kind of folks in the Beltway talk about electability is the way your average voter thinks about electability. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think you were involved in the Romney campaign, right? I think part of what people were reacting to is like picking a Mitt Romney style candidate or John McCain style candidate. I think Republicans looked at this quote unquote moderate candidate and were were willing to take a risk on something else, like somebody who broke the paradigm. Well, yeah, I, and, and while I did not work for the Romney campaign, I, I was a, a fan of his. I did, I, I was consulted for, um, I was one of many, many, many people who were consulted around that, the autopsy report about what should the party do moving forward, um, in particular because I had a focus on younger voters and wanted Republicans to do much better with the younger generation. But it is notable that that report had a whole bunch of recommendations for what the GOP should do to win elections moving forward. And actually, some of them, the ones that were more nuts and bolts, how do you use data? How do you build a ground game? Were actually things Donald Trump's team did. But the yeah. stuff about we need to moderate on immigration, we yeah. need to get more celebrities <laughs> talking to young voters, like a lot of those recommendations, Donald Trump did the opposite and still wound up finding success at the ballot box. And so that has led to a lot of Republican rank and file voters saying, don't tell me what electability means. Mm. And so as you look at the, you know, so you, you're a, sort of an expert on the youth vote and Gen Z vote. When you look back at your autopsy and also just where the party has, has evolved since then and what the numbers tell us, where is the Republican party right now with young voters relative to when you wrote that autopsy and, and as you look at trends, young people, people of color, uh, where are the trends heading? Is the GOP in better shape or worse shape than when you wrote that? So the things that have made the GOP in better shape is that the party has expanded its appeal to sort of the working class voter um, and in particular has improved its standing among 
sort of working class voters of color, particularly Latino voters, um, there was a lot of talk a decade ago that there was going to be this permanent Democratic majority, that demographics were destiny and that Republicans would never be able to put together a, a viable majority coalition again. And what that missed was that actually Republicans would be able to win larger shares of kind of working class voters, white and voters of color, um, who had previously found Democrats' message appealing on some economic issues, but began to feel more and more alienated from the Democrats on sort of cultural kinds of grounds, um, or weren't necessarily sure that the Democrats' message was for them. And so those kind of countervailing forces, yes, Republicans doing less well with younger voters, but also doing better with working class voters, working class voters of color, voters without college degrees, like those forces pushed against each other and left Republicans in, in a not too bad shape in at least the short term. My worry for Republicans about younger voters is the long term prospect. So when I first started writing about this, you know, young voters were breaking for Barack Obama by a two to one margin. And this was a real big historic anomaly. Um, most of the time, you do not see any generation breaking for one presidential candidate over another by margins like that. Um, and the problem for Republicans was if that damage wasn't fixed in pretty short order, it would stick. So today, if you look at those voters who were 18 to 29 back then, they're now in their 30s. You know, Time has passed. They're in their 30s all the way up until their 40s. And they have... In general, as a group, they've moved a bit to the right relative to that like low watermark in 2008, but they're still a pretty Democratic-leaning group. And typically, voters in their 30s and 40s have actually been a more Republican constituency in the past. Mm. So the fact that they're still breaking for Democrats, often by double-digit margins, is a sign that yeah, on on the on the margins, you may have some people who said, "Yeah, I was a Democrat back in the Obama era, but now I've moved rightward for one reason or the other." But most of them haven't, and it's now a larger and larger piece of the electoral pie. If Republicans continue to lose them by double digits, that may not spell disaster in the next election, and and that's part of the problem. Is in politics, everybody thinks short term; they think I just yeah. got to win the next election. But this is a bill that is going to come due in the medium term. And at that point, it's really hard to fix. And so in looking at this past midterm election, I'm perplexed by it. Cause I was saying to my democratic friends, man, I was like, you know, we could be wrong. Like we could do better than expected in this election. But when does that ever happen to Democrats? Like usually these polling errors to the extent they exist, which we'll, we could talk about later tend to work against us. But Whatever, and I'm I'm not even claiming there was a polling error on this one because when I look back at the polling, it was more accurate than people give it credit for. So putting the polling question aside, what allowed Democrats to overperform expectations in this election? There was a real, uh, there was a theory of the case that the election was going to be about voters feeling economically and physically insecure. And there's a lot of evidence that that was true. And Republicans assumed that that would benefit them entirely, right? That if you felt economically insecure because of inflation and Biden's economy, that you would vote Republican. Or that if you felt physically unsafe because you're worried about the border or you're worried about crime in your community, that you would vote Republican. But what that missed is that there were ways people could feel economically insecure, but not necessarily trust Republicans to fix it. If you're worried about the cost of a college education, if you're worried about um, 
you know, income inequality or cuts to, you know, programs that provide support to folks with lower income. You might feel economically insecure, but you don't think Republicans have the answer. Similarly, you can feel physically insecure about something like crime and safety, but your worry is that too many people have guns. And in that case, Democrats are the ones that maybe have the answer that's more appealing to you. You also had something like uh, being insecure about institutions. And so you'd see a lot of polls pop up that would say people are worried about the state of our democracy. And that was that was true. A lot of voters felt like our democracy is at risk. But that didn't necessarily always benefit one party over the other. You have Republicans that think democracy is at risk because they have heightened concerns about things like voter fraud. You have Democrats who have concerns about the state of democracy because they worry about the Supreme Court. They worry about uh, you know, misinformation and foreign meddling in elections and those sorts of things and worries about things like January 6th. And so the, the, my main point is that there are lots of cross pressures and you can say, gosh, we're in a moment when only 20% of Americans think we're headed on the right track. And normally that's the kind of environment that benefits the party out of power. But a lot of Democrats don't necessarily view themselves as the party in power. They still mm. worry about the specter of Republican leadership. And swing voters, too, don't necessarily put all the blame on Democrats for the things that are going wrong in their lives. That led to a red wave winding up being kind of a, a red fizzle in the end. Yeah. You know, interesting part of that psychology I've talked to a bunch of people about was the, the prominence of Dobbs. Because what Dobbs did... You know, beyond the obvious and motivating voters on the issue itself was it created this frame that Democrats weren't fully in charge, right? It's like, oh, like there's this really powerful institution that actually is making like the most significant one point in time decision that people cared about in that election. And it, it allowed Democrats to point to somebody else and say, all right, these people are still doing things that you don't like. And and it was it was a unique it, it, it was unique in a way that like a legislative body making a decision, even if the president and the legislative, the, the Senate or Congress are in different parties, there was something about the, the, this, how clean the narrative was that I felt really helped Democrats. Is that your sense? Well, voters don't turn out to vote to say thank you. And so that's typically <laughs> yeah. why the party in power does poorly in midterms, right? That, that their voters are not going gosh, let me turn out in this midterm to thank Donald Trump for the things he did in his first two years in office or to thank Barack Obama for passing Obamacare. Like, it just doesn't happen. It's the people who turn out are the ones that are mad about what has gone down. And so I think you're exactly right that because there are still things happening that are very prominent that are associated with conservatives did this, you did not have a lot of pro-life voters saying, I'm going to turn out to vote because I'm glad that Dobbs turned out the way it did. But you did have voters who opposed Dobbs, particularly young women voters, who said, I don't like this, and turned out to vote, and they might not have otherwise. And so I don't think that I would say Dobbs was the number one issue in this election. I think it was part of many, many, many different things going on. But I do think that it played a role in increasing voter turnout and Democratic vote share among young voters, particularly young women. Um, and you just didn't see like a countervailing force of big turnout among pro-life voters saying, gosh, thank you so much. Supreme thank you for Court, that. What you yeah. did. Now, what is, the, you know, one of the big narratives coming out of the election was about electability and particularly election denialism. 
what's your sense about how much the, the, the combination of those two factors played a part? Like, cause I think like the theory being one of the, you know, most salient issues that exposed maybe how loony some of these candidates were was just when they started talking about the election. Uh, do you, do you feel like that was a big factor or is that being overblown? I think it's a little bit overblown because I think it, you have a lot of Republicans who have taken the position that maybe not that Joe Biden is an illegitimate president or something that's super far out there, but that they say, look, I'm, I think there were rules that were changed ahead of the 2020 election, and that was unfair. I think the media treated Donald Trump unfair. You know, we talk about, uh, you know, oh, so X number of Republicans, like some high percentage of Republicans believe that the 2020 election was unfair. But unfair means a lot of different things. There are some that, that mm -hmm. think this was like it was stolen. There were buckets of invalid ballots that were. But then there are other folks that say, I think it was unfair because I think the media didn't treat Donald Trump fair. So there's like a spectrum mm -hmm. of beliefs that under that fall under that one category. Um, and so you'll still find huge percentages of Republicans who believe that the 2020 election was unfair and think it was serious. And so this idea of, oh, don't, let's not litigate it again, actually doesn't do super well. But the message of it's important, but we have to focus on the future. We have to focus on other things. We can't look back. We have to look forward. Is more of what you find Republican voters saying, yeah, that sounds right. I'm, I think that what happened in the past was wrong, but I want to look forward at the problems that we're facing down the road. And that's where someone like a Ron DeSantis, I think, is going to have an advantage because Donald Trump just cannot stop <laughs> focusing on things that happened in the past and relitigating old grievances. Right. And even if Republican voters still agree with him about those grievances, that's not, they're not interested in continuing to fight that fight. They want to look at the fights of the future. Well, speaking of the future, you've done a lot of polling about our K to 12 system. And obviously in the Yunkin race, the, the school system writ large and critical race theory and all that, you know, reached a prominence that education issues tend not to reach in our election. It's something that frustrates me as a former charter school principal. It's just how little education factors in. And, and, and a good example of this was the 2020 primary. Democrats, you know, they talk more about busing, for example, a policy that doesn't really exist anymore than anything really contemporary on that stage. Uh, as you, you know, survey the past couple of election cycles, going back to Yunkin and then looking ahead, uh, where does education rank right now? Do you think this is going to be a major issue? And, and we talked about DeSantis, for example, who probably talks about education more than almost anybody else. Now, people might not love what he has to say about it, but he certainly seems to have an education message. Like, is your sense that education is going to be a dominant issue in 2024? Well, education has been a sort of second or third tier issue in most elections for the last, you know, two decades, really since 9-11. Uh, you know, education had been a much bigger issue in national polling prior to that, then sort of fell down the list. You had national security dominate most of the 2000s. Then you had the economy and jobs dominate the decade after that. Uh, and now it's a little bit of this jumble of things like inflation, et cetera. But education still is sort of second or, or third tier. But in a race like in Virginia, um, I think a lot of the national media conversation around it said, ah, Yunkin won because of K-12 and talking about CRT. And I think that missed that there was a lot of other stuff going on in that election. I mean, he was running ads about eliminating the grocery tax. 
at a moment where cost of living was beginning to go up and the inflation issue was really beginning to rear its head. Um, you had, uh, for instance, him, you, you also had him talking about K-12 in a way that was saying it wasn't just about CRT, it was about parent voice. And so you could be a more progressive leaning parent in Fairfax County in Northern Virginia. The CRT stuff is not even remotely a concern for you, but you are mad that your local schools were closed for as long as mm. they were. And so I think now that we are three years out from the COVID-19 pandemic having been declared, um, you know, schools are all back open. And yes, you do still have, you know, kids having to take tests and mask in some situations, but by and large, we've moved past it. The salience of that, oh my gosh, the schools are, are making me have to scramble to figure out how to take care of my kids during the day, that like acute challenge is gone. And that's why I think the role of K-12 in the Yunkin race just wasn't as, it, it, was, it was bigger there than it was in the 2022 midterms overall. Mm. I also think, you know, when we talk about someone like DeSantis in Florida, if you are looking at that race from a national perspective, you're probably talking about what's what's getting play on Twitter, what's getting outrage on MSNBC or plaudits on Fox News, right? But if you're actually a voter in Florida, in addition to the more controversial things, they raised teacher pay in Florida. Like there's some stuff that's just, mm -hmm. you get 80% of people saying that they like it and support it. And some of that stuff has been happening too. Expansion of, of school choice. Like those are the sorts of things that maybe don't get as much attention because there's not as much heat around them. Um, but that have been a, a pretty consistent focus of not just DeSantis, but governors of Florida going back to Jeb, kind of the original education governor in a sense. Um, mm. That's always been a focus in in Florida. And so, you know, you mentioned school choice, obviously something that's near and dear to my heart, and I know you've done a lot of work on this. So when we talk about school choice, I've written about, like, the concept being flawed because we certain things we call school choice and other things we don't, but I won't go into that. But the sort of the simple picture is that most elected Democrats oppose most forms of school choice. There are exceptions. Barack Obama was one exception. Cory Booker is an exception. Jared Polis is an exception, but by and large, Democrats are more skeptical of charter schools, ESAs, vouchers than Republicans. What do we know about what the electorate thinks about those various mechanisms of school choice? And, you know, I have this sense that the demographic splits are, are actually also really important. So like the way black and brown Democrats view those issues might be a little different than white progressives. Sure. Um, so you're you're right that in general, if you ask, for instance, do you believe that parents should be able to have a say in where their child attends school and it shouldn't just be determined by the zip code where they live? You get enormous numbers of people who say yes. If you just ask, do you support or oppose school choice? You get support, but it's a little bit lower. Um, and if I were to ask it as, would you support or oppose funding for schools being taken away and given to private schools if those schools are failing and students leave to go get education elsewhere. Then suddenly people go, oh, I, I don't know about that. Why, why are you cutting funding to that school? It sounds like they need it. So a lot of this is about, uh, you know, how do you frame it and, and what are we talking about? So to your point about school choice means a lot of different things or it's poorly understood, that affects some of the polling too. You definitely see that for white progressives, they are the most opposed, where for 
more democratic leaning voters of color, they are most often the ones saying, no, actually, I'm kind of open to this. I do think that it is a little bit ridiculous that the zip code you live in is for so many kids, the only determinant of where you would go to school. Um, and we need to do something to think differently about the system. So there are some fractures sort of even within uh, coalitions uh, around something like school choice. There was some data, although it's 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 somewhat questionable to what extent it really was decisive. But actually, in 2018, when Ron DeSantis first ran for governor, that was a very, very, very close race. And there's some evidence to suggest that DeSantis overperformed in, say, South Florida in communities of color that year because he was somebody who said, I want to run uh, a message of school choice. And that like very targeted discussion yeah. of that issue I've heard this. meant that yeah. there were some communities that would have never voted for him otherwise, but were open to it. That's what Carl, you know, Carlos Corbello, I don't know if you know Carlos from uh, former congressman from Miami. He does a, a yeah. show for us, a Spanish language show. And he said that to us. He said he thinks that charters won DeSantis that race, which is fascinating. Um, have you done any polling in ESAs by uh, education savings accounts by any chance? Because I'm trying to get good data on that because there's so many claims being made about who supports it and who doesn't. And it seems like such an explosive issue, but I haven't been able to get great data on it. No. So that's not something where off the top of my head, I have uh, a really clear sense of where the public would stand. And I also suspect that might be a challenging uh, thing to pull on in part because, you know, when I want to ask a question, for instance, about, do you think that America's K-12 schools are doing a good job. Like I can ask that question of everybody and people have a view, even if they don't have kids in the public schools. But then if you say, well, are schools in your community any good? You'll, you'll get a higher level of people saying unsure on that kind of question. But when you begin asking really specific questions about things like, I would say something like ESAs or, you know, very specific kind of nuts and bolts of how school choice or putting more power back in parents' hands would work, you wind up with a lot of people that you're polling who in some ways, they say, I, I would defer to teachers or I would defer, you know, like they're mm -hmm. looking for messengers like teachers who they say, look, I don't I don't know that I have an opinion on this because it doesn't affect me personally. So I'll just do what I hear teachers in my community saying or what I see teachers on television saying. I mean, teachers are such an important messenger on all of this. So that's that's more of where I would I would direct you if you're trying to think through, like, yeah. where does the public stand on this? Like most people in the public are going to have really loosely formed views about a lot of pieces of this puzzle if they are not parents of kids who are in K-12 schools at the moment. Got it. Well, last question for you. So polling. In the era of uh, people not using landlines as much, younger people, et cetera, there's, there's been a lot of you know, ink devoted to the decline of polling and the lack of reliability and all that as a pollster. Tell us, where, where do things stand? How do, how do you adjust in 2023 to the modern environment? How do you get good information? So polling is a real challenge. Uh, and it has been challenging since I first started working in this industry in 2005. But it's gotten unbelievably more challenging since then. Because on the one hand, technology has done some good things, right? It's made it easier than ever for us to reach you. I can not just field a poll by calling you on your landline phone. I can call you on your cell. I can text you. There's all kinds of internet polling, online polling, and panels that have become much more prevalent. So pollsters have more tools at their fingertips than ever. The problem is that each of those tools is also facing challenges because of technology. You've got caller ID. That means response rates are <laughs> unbelievably low. Yeah. 
Um, you've got for online polls, the rise of bots and things where we've got to do a lot of careful work to screen out bots and professional survey takers and so on from our surveys so that they're not polluting our data. So every technological advance we get that makes it easier for us to do survey research always comes with two or three other ways that it's making it harder. In some ways, it's a miracle that polling is as right as it is. And in some ways, I, I get frustrated when people say, oh, look, the polls missed in the midterms. Well, not really. The polls did suggest that the red wave was not going to be a big wave, that there was a lot of uncertainty, that you had a lot of these races that were going to be pretty close toss-ups. And that is a quite a bit of what happened. I think what happened in this election and the reason why some folks felt surprised is that people were giving Republicans a couple of extra bonus points because they assumed, look, the polls the last couple of times have been wrong by missing Republican voters. So let's just assume that Republicans are going to get like a bonus 3% here because of shy Trump voters. And that wound up not being the case. Polls have missed uh, in the past by a couple of points, but it's not always in the same direction. Recall in 12, you know, the polls sort of overestimated Mitt Romney's chances of beating Barack Obama. They suggested that race was probably closer than it was. Because back then, polls were not calling enough people on their cell phones. You know, hadn't caught up to the technological change. And so we are, as an industry, constantly figuring out what's the big technological change that's making our lives harder. How do we face it? Um, and there's no guarantee that what was wrong with the polls last time is the thing that's going to be wrong with the polls next time. So we're right. constantly looking forward, trying to figure out what's next. Oof, I don't envy you. It's a tough problem. But thank you so much for joining us, Kristen. This was great. Uh, please plug anything you're working on. I know you have a great Substack, so please direct our listeners to that. Yes, and, um, come check out yeah. my Substack. It's kristensoltisanderson.substack.com. Uh, Kristen it's called Codebook. Um, I've got a great piece up that I, I just wrote about the three-year anniversary of COVID, looking back at polling from that first week or two of the pandemic. A really fascinating look back at the past. Uh, check it out. All right. Well, thank you so much. The Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Nick Perrone. Research support from Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra. Video editing by Julia Waldman. Audio editing by Dean Metherell. 